I was tempted to substitute our regular theme with On the Road Again, but Willie Nelson's people and my people couldn't arrive at an agreement. That's okay. I prefer our tune and our orchestra in a nutshell. This is Monk Rowe, and we are taking this 13th episode of Jazz Backstory On the Road Again. A few more tales of cars and buses full of swinging musicians. Before we get to our road travails, let's take a slight detour. While gathering these particular excerpts from our 450 interviews in the Phileas Jazz Archive collection, I was reminded how vibrant the American jazz scene was during the first half of the 20th century. Swing bands in particular, ranging in size from 15 to 20 musicians, offered employment to thousands of players. Mostly young and mostly men, they were eager to take part in what seemed to be an adventurous and hip way to work and live. It begs the question, socially and economically, what made this scene possible then? One answer is dancing. Before it became a respected art form, jazz developed as a form of entertainment. Engaging with an audience was a measure of success, and dancing was a key to that engagement. Starting in the 1920s, the so-called Jazz Age, dance halls and ballrooms were common in every town and city across the country. Happily, DJs were not yet part of the scene. Swing bands were part of the draw. The groups played dances in theaters, and even the top bands in the business had a concert book and a dance book. A concert hall engagement would often be followed the next night by a dance gig at an Elks Club or VFW. Social dancing was so popular that it attracted entrepreneurs who devised a way to join random couples together on the dance floor for a modest fee. Veteran trumpeter Bobby Johnson recalled playing for these jitney or taxi dances. Jitney dance, oh, yeah. well, a jitney dance, a jitney dance was like, uh, 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 like a lot of people came in at at uh, at, at low price, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? We 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 used to have there were certain nights that they would have like fifteen twenty cents, and you could hear you could hear Benny Carter, you could hear Fletcher Henderson for twenty five called Jitney dances, uh-huh. you know, and 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 in New York. Up, 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 and down Broadway, they had they had these uh, jitney places that the girls would come in, and oh, now it it, it comes back to me. They they used to have tickets. They have tickets, and 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 you would give the girl uh, maybe a quarter to dance with her so many times. There wasn't anything wrong about mm-hmm. it. It was just yeah. that was just paying. To have someone to dance with, uh-huh. you know what I mean. As a matter of fact, uh, they made a movie about it, uh, you know, about, about about people coming in with with their tickets, and you'd give. And I heard that there's one still left on Broadway even now, wow. somewhere. You're going, you give the ticket, and you dance. They call them jitney dances. The quarters and dimes would be split between the girls and the venue. Band leaders were instructed to keep the tune short. The more tunes, the more dances, the more quarters and dimes. 
Dancing and jazz eventually parted company, but that's a story for a future episode. Our road stories from the previous episode dealt mostly with creature comforts, or lack thereof. Cold buses, funky hotels, and bad food were part of the life, and most of the participants stated, I'm glad I did it when I was young. As a warning, the following stories prove that things can always get worse. From episode 12, here's a quote from Carmen Leggio about the road life. Carmen said, You can never really take care of yourself that good. And that's why guys used to get out of hand a little bit, you know, just to forget about it. End quote. So imagine having a job that occupied only four to six hours of each 24. You may love this job, but you're not home. Home alternates between a shared motel room or a bus seat. iPhones and iPads, Walkmans and other diversions are yet to be invented. When Carmen Leggio speaks of guys trying to forget about it, he references a dark side of the jazz life that has received an undue amount of attention, but did take its toll. I think one story from drummer Sonny Igo will cover this topic at this point in our jazz backstory. You ready for another story? Yeah. We're on a one-nighter one nighters with Woody Herman's band. And when I joined Woody Herman's band in 1950, uh, we were on the bus, and this dear friend of mine, marvelous trumpet player, I won't mention his name, could play anything on the trumpet, play high screeching, beautiful, soft ballads, fast bebop, any style, Dixieland, swing, bebop, anything. On the, it's just marvelous. World-class and he was a junkie. And when they would run out of junk, they'd drink whiskey like uh, it was coming out of a water faucet, you know, to try to help get over it. Well, finally, we were, we were on the, in an unair-conditioned bus. We were down Kentucky or South Carolina, someplace, I don't know, out in the Georgia, I don't know, in that kind of country. We're all rural, all hot, and we, had, we each had a, a double seat because there's a lot of seats on the bus and there's only 15 guys or whatever. Yeah. So right across from me is this guy who's a dear friend of mine. And I'm fa- finally falling asleep and I said, oh, go to sleep, go to sleep. I almost said his name, I don't want to say his name. <laughs> so anyway, uh, I'm falling asleep, I'm so, uh, I go, I smell burning flesh, okay, and I look over and here's this guy, he had a cigarette with his hand, oh, he's unconscious practically, has a cigarette like here, and it had burned down between his two fingers and was burning his flesh and smoking. It was actually smoking. So I go like this across the aisle, knock it off, naturally wake him up. And he started in on me like, uh, uh, you know, I can't, uh, can't mention the words he used and how dumb I was, and what's the idea, and blah, blah, blah. I tried to explain to him. The next day he saw it, didn't bother him at all. Played like it never happened. Played like it never happened. (laughs) But that's how, unfortunately, some of those guys ruined their lives. 
with that stuff. Mm. And it's it's no. Uh, I was I was glad I was uh, a square. <laughs> a lot. <laughs> a couple a of lot. beers is good enough for me. We can choose to be sympathetic to these personal addictions or not, citing them as a personal choice. Lanny Morgan mentioned another dark side of travel that can't be ignored. For black bands on the road or black members of mixed bands, basic personal choices were limited, making their day-to-day that much more difficult. In 2018, The Green Book won three Academy Awards for its portrayal of an accomplished African-American musician performing and traveling in the South. In the following excerpts, we'll hear variations on the subject of that movie, this time from Phileas Jazz Archive interviewees. In Episode 7, we heard bassist Milt Hinton's story of being drafted into the Cab Calloway Band. In 1995, his wife Mona spoke about their travels between 1936 and 1950 with Cab's band. Well, unfortunately, due to the climate of our society, uh, you know, that we had every, the blacks and the whites were segregated. And it made it very difficult, especially uh, when we were traveling in the South, because frequently we would run into Glenn Miller's band or Tommy Dorsey's band or some of the well-known white bands. They were staying in uh, nice hotels, and unfortunately, the black musician would have to stay on the other side of the track, usually in someone's home or in a hotel that was uh, not very good. And as I say, unfortunately, frequently, frequently the, uh, the owners of the hotels, they would uh, take advantage I mean, of the black musician. They knew that we could not stay in places and that you'd run into places with rats and with the, the roaches and the bed bugs and whatnot. But... Uh, so those, under those circumstances, it was not good. Frequently, we would go in towns, and um, I would have to go out in the black community and try to help find rooms for the uh, for the musician in Callaway's band. And uh, sometimes it was very, very the the uh, places where we had to eat were just intolerable. And uh, as I said, we made it. We were fortunate that we never had to travel in cars like most of the uh, oh. other musicians in those days. They yep. had to pile in automobiles, but Callaway was first class all the way. He was always first class. And coming back, we would uh, have a, uh, a bus, and we usually keep the same driver, the same bus, and work our way back down through the south and back, back to New York. And uh, it's kind of funny that the, we had this one bus driver for quite a long time, and instead of sleeping when he was supposed to be sleeping while the band was playing, he would be partying. So it was my job. <laughs> uh, I'd have to sit up in the seat right behind him and keep him awake till daybreak. And then Mr. Wright, who happened to, who was the uh, road manager, then he'd come and he would sit up there, sit up there with him and then I could go take a nap. But uh, it was fun. It was really fun. As I say, and I was always the only female traveling with the band all the time, so... I was the din mother. <laughs> Mona mentions that Cab Calloway, like Duke Ellington, solved part of the issue by reserving their own Pullman rail car, which then acted as a bus and a hotel. Joe Wilder, with the same positive attitude that Mona Hinton displayed, relates a head-scratching story from his stint with the Lucky Millinder Band. You had told me about an incident with 
one of the bands you were with in the South, I think it was South Carolina. Oh, oh Lucky Mullender. Yes, yeah. and it was the first time you'd been down there with a yeah, we, we, band. we were in South Carolina, and Lucky Mullender, Lucky was a very nice, nice fellow. He was not a musician, but he, he had a lot of natural talent for selecting the right kinds of tunes and tempos and things of that nature. But uh, we had, I think, six of the members of the band were white. And uh, when we when we went, we arrived early in South Carolina at this hall where we were going to play, and suddenly up drove the the sheriff with his deputy in the police car, and he said, "Who's in charge here?" And so Lucky said, "I am." He said, "Well, I'm just here to tell you, there it's not going to be any mixed bands, any mixed bands playing down here in Charleston." And and Lucky looked at this guy. Lucky, another reason I think they called him Lucky. He he would take a chance on anything. He looked this guy dead in the eye and said, "This is not a mixed band." And and some of the guys are blonde with blue eyes and all this. There's no way in the world anybody would have mistaken any of these guys for being black, you know. And so he went. He went to each guy. I think if he had said, "Are are you are you black?" They might have, he might have gotten a different answer, but he went to each of these guys and asked him, said, are you colored? And each of the guys going along with what Lucky had said, so would say yes, you know, and, and he sort of shake his head. And he got finally, the last uh, of the guys he asked was uh, Porky Cohen, who was our first trombone player. And he had a slight lisp. And when he asked him, now Porky is, is, is responding more emphatically than the other guys, and he said, why, certainly, <laughs> with this list. And at this point, we had all been standing there chewing on our tongues yeah. and everything trying not to break up because it was so ludicrous. And when, when he did this, you could almost feel the ground tremble with the guys laughing, trying not to let the sheriff see them. But anyway, he turned to the deputy and he said, well, I guess if they all say they're colored, there ain't nothing we can do about it, is it, Jeff? And so he said, no, Sheriff, and they got in the car and they drove off, and we played that dance that night. That's it was very funny. And it might, as I mentioned to you, it might have been the first time that an integrated band played there. Mm -hmm. it's, it's very possible that that was the first time. No matter how many accolades and awards an artist may earn during a career, the humiliation experienced during their early years in the business can stick with them. Ruth Brown could sing anything from jazz to gospel and earned the title Queen of R&B. She was inducted into the Rock and Roll and Rhythm and Blues Hall of Fame and was honored with a Tony and Grammy Lifetime Achievement Award. Despite all that, she still felt no forgiveness for the assumptions made by Mississippi State Police. Well, most times we toured in buses, station wagons, and then when you got so-called to the top of the ladder, which eventually happened in my case, uh, there were those stars who did have the Cadillacs and whatnot, but you took it on your own. You chanced it to go to the Deep South with that kind of a vehicle. And I got arrested a couple of times. They locked the car up a couple of times, you know, and they wanted to know how you could afford that, even though I've had an experience, and when my book comes out, it will speak of an occasion on which we were going to Gulfport, Mississippi, Charles Brown, um, Paul Huckabuck Williams, and myself. And the police stopped us and said that we were doing like 30 miles an hour in a 25-mile zone, something like that. 
and made us all get out of our cars. And of course, these were nice cars. A couple of Chrysler's of things remind me, right? Anyway, what we eventually had to do was when we pulled out all the instruments to prove that they weren't stolen, we had to do a concert on the side of the road, which was probably the most embarrassing thing that's ever happened to me. And I was the only one standing there not doing anything. And my pianist named Lee Anderson, who now is still alive in Seattle, I saw him a couple of years ago, we remembered that all of the musicians had taken out their instruments and were playing, you know, on the side of the road. And this tall policeman said to Lee Anderson, well, what do you play? And he said, I play piano. And he said, well, why aren't you not playing? There's no piano, you know. And in those days, we weren't carrying electric pianos like they do now. They carry the keyboards and whatnot, you know. And so the officer said, well, you got five seconds to start playing something. Oh, that's <laughs> The funniest sad. thing happened. Intuitiveness, when it's about survival, you think of something. I'll never forget the band was playing, and he leaned over the hood of the car and started playing on the hood of the car. And the police officers accepted that. He proved that he knew how to move his hands at least. And then last but not least, they looked at me and I was standing there very arrogant in those days. I didn't fear death, you understand? And they said, and who are you? And I was very vain. I said, I'm the person who pays all of these musicians, you know. I ended up singing on the side of the road. <laughs> you know, he banished his pistol and put his hand on it and said, well, let me hear you sing something. And so there we were, all seven of us standing on the side of the road as the cars were going by and going around us, slowing down, doing this performance. How did you deal with the hotels or lack there of There were hotels? none most times. Lack of <laughs> hotels is what it was. What you had to do was you always left in time to get into the city where you were going to work and get there early enough to go down on what we call the main drag. You know, you'd get in town and not know just where to go. And when you'd ask instructions, usually you would, they would say to you, find the railroad track. And once you find the railroad track, cross over. But you would get into that neighborhood and inquire of somebody most times who had a house and some extra rooms. There uh -huh. were a lot of what you call tourist homes. Uh-huh, uh-huh. You know what I'm saying? Uh, and you'd go and get a room there. And I can remember many times, and I've gone in, and people have like doubled their children up and took the children's the room the children were sleeping in to give to me and my assistant or something. And members of the band, usually there was a restaurant upstairs, they would have some room, and that's where we would stay. I mean, we did not have the opportunity to visit the Holiday Inns, believe me. That was not possible. Many African-American jazz musicians in the 50s and 60s emigrated to Europe, where they enjoyed respect for their artistry. Saxophonist James Moody spent productive years in France as a young man, and on his return, led a touring group, backing up vocalist Brooke Benton of a rainy night in Georgia fame. Because I wasn't going to come back. I was living in France then, mm -hmm. in Paris. I wasn't going to come back because... Uh, I never will forget, I used to write, and <laughs> I used to write things to my mother, and uh, 
I used to say things, you know, like I, I shouldn't have said it, but that's the way I felt, you know. You know, because in old days, like if you say an old fake cat, that meant a Caucasian person, mm -hmm. old fake. So I'd put USA, land of the old fake. You know, my mother would say, oh, don't, oh, they'll put you in jail for that, you know, because I, I had had it. Like with the, the racism mm -hmm. that went on, I mean, it was, you remember I told you about the book Benton Review? Yeah. I'm going to tell them about the donut, honey. I've, we were on the tour, and we, um, I forget just where we were, but I had a $100 bill. So I went into the donut shop to get some donuts. They said they didn't have any change. So I went across the street to an automobile company where they sell automobiles, asked for change. They didn't have it there, so I said, oh, the heck with it. I got back on the bus. So when I got on the bus, in a minute, Brooke Benton called me and says, hey, Moody. He says, what? He said, this state trooper wants to see you. So I thought it was joking, state trooper. I looked down, sure enough, there's a state trooper down there. So I get off, the state trooper looks at me, he says, what's your name? I said, James Moody. He says, what do you do? I said, well, see, I said, my name's on the bus there. I said, I'm the band for Mr. Mm -hmm. Mr. Benton here, you know. And Brooks says, uh, maybe I can, he said, get the hell out of here, get over there, I'm not talking to you, I'm talking to him, you know. Mm -hmm. So he says, how much money do you have? I said, I don't know, maybe four or five hundred dollars. So he said, let me see it. So I reached in one pocket and pulled out my traveler's checks. Another pocket, I had cash, but I wasn't going to get, you know, something told me don't do it. So I gave him the traveler's checks, there about seven, eight hundred bucks in traveler's checks, because I hadn't paid the band and stuff. So... He looks at the traveler check, and he looks at me and says, too much money. So what am I supposed to say behind it? Too much money? I mean, I, I didn't say it. He looks again, too much money. I said, well, I says, but I'm the leader here. And I said, and I have to pay the musicians. I haven't paid them all. He said, too much money. You know. So he put it down, and he was saying, he looked at me again, too much. He must have said this about 15 or 20 times. Then he called for another car. Another car came with a lieutenant, and they talked. And then a captain came, they talked. After this crap went on about half hour, 45 minutes, he, he, they gave me the, he came over again, did it again. Too much money, too much money. And then, I mean, he, oh, it just hurt him. He gave me the travel check back, and he left. Now, you know what happened? When I went into to the uh, uh, automobile store. Every day they said, there's a Negro here with a $100 bill. He probably stole it. Uh -huh. So the cop came, and that's how that came about. Mm -hmm. yeah. Lastly, trombonist Al Gray relates a similar story, but includes a bit of positive foreshadowing regarding jazz and society. Share with us just a moment what it was like uh, traveling from city to city at that time. Give us a year. Uh, some of the years of your travel, like let's say 47 or 55 or whatever, and tell us what it was like for a traveling musician at that time. It was very bad because uh, we could not uh, eat right because we couldn't go into the restaurants and have a, a meal. We'd have to go around the back. And uh, we couldn't go into none of the hotels. We'd have to try to find a room at maybe a school teacher's home that had a nice decent home 
or a doctor's home or a lawyer's home because they were the ones that might have a place, an uh, extra room. So we would get off the bus and scour around that town to see where we could get a room. And that's the way it was. And you did nothing but one-nighters, see? Uh, but then Benny Carter, we did m many engagements for the Army, which uh, we signed away our lives to ride on those C-27 <coughs> C planes. Uh, and, but then things began, we could see where things began to get better. Well, what, what year was this, when, see, when you felt things began to get better? This is coming into like 1948. And see, then uh, every now and then up north you could stay in a white hotel. See, but it wasn't still that much. Although I had to put in a little, a little thing here. We had a trombone player that played with Lionel Hampton, and he was Japanese, Paul Hakaki. And it was worse for him, so it made us feel uh, that we can go on and make it. See, because uh, like his parents was the prisoners down in Denver in the prison camp and mm -hmm. everything after the war. And Lionel Hampton uh, took him on and uh, he could play trombone really well. And then uh, leaving all of this, going to Lionel, then going to uh, Lucky Miller, I went with Dizzy Gillespie. And we still had those bad times. And we had really rough times with Lucky Millinder because we played in the South mostly. See, this is the days where we used to play uh, tobacco warehouses and things. And this is where the blacks would have to sit up in the balcony and then we'd play to the whites. And I remember. We finally get to San Antonio, Texas one time, and the people, they had the, the, the cheers to separate, the back-to-back, -back, and the blacks was over here and the whites over here, but the whites didn't seem like they loved the music, so that day they just started moving the cheers, and so they started mingling. And this is where we could see changes being made on the band. So the music made the difference? Yeah. I would dare say so very strongly about that. Al Gray sets us up for another future episode, the role of music, jazz in particular, in breaking down segregation and social ills. We'll lighten up a bit with a short excerpt from trombonist Eddie Burt. Perhaps his road time with Stan Kenton and Benny Goodman created an internal odometer in his mind. What's... um? in the near future for you. I know you're doing Bobby Short. Yeah, well, it just, it's day to day, you know? Yeah? Yeah. I do what I can, you know. Uh, a lot of rehearsal bands and uh, things to keep chops. Yeah. But that's what you have to do. Mm -hmm. And I do a lot of traveling. You know, I have to, uh, last Friday I worked in Morristown, New Jersey. And uh, that's like 100 miles each way. Then, uh, uh, what was it, yesterday? No, the day before yesterday, I worked in uh, Lambertville, which is outside of New Hope. That was 150 miles each way. 
So, you know. Yeah. And then I make some rehearsal bands. I do a rehearsal in uh, Emerson, New Jersey, and that's 65 miles each way. And that's no pay. Uh -huh. That's a rehearsal. So then I rehearse with another band in Berlin, Connecticut, and that's 45 miles each way. <laughs> <laughs> it looks like you've got your mileage down. Anyway. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> there are a few happy ending road stories. You may recall jazz pianist Frank Strazeri and his good fortune on an unexpected gig. I'll read a bit of the rest of his story. Frank said, Every time I talked to Elvis after the gigs, he gave me $300. Plus, the way we lived, we were getting good bread every day, staying at the best hotels, our own plane, our own chefs, our own pilots, our own stewardesses. It was unbelievable. For a musician, being on the road, it was the best gig you could possibly get. I can't think of anything that could have been better than that. End quote. It's not lost on me that the best possible road gig a jazz musician could ever have was playing for a rock star. That's the biz. As time and musical tastes changed, the large swing bands faded out. Jazz returned to small combos, and an army of accomplished musicians began looking for the next gig. The best of them founded in the recording studios, the subject of our next two podcast episodes. See you on the flip side.